Chapter Two of the Lair of the White Worm by Bram Stoker, read for LibriVox.org by Betsy Bush. Chapter Two: The Caswells of Castor Regis. Mister Sultan had all his life been an early riser, and necessarily an early waker. But early as he woke on the next morning, and although there was an excuse for not prolonging sleep in the constant whirr and rattle of the donkey engine winches of the great ship. He met the eyes of Adam fixed on him from his berth. His grand nephew had given him the sofa, occupying the lower berth himself. The old man, despite his great strength and normal activity, was somewhat tired by his long journey of the day before and the prolonged and exciting interview which followed it. So he was glad to lie still and rest his body, whilst his mind was actively exercising in taking in all he could of his strange surroundings. Adam too, after the pastoral habit to which he had been bred, woke with the dawn, and was ready to enter on the experiences of the new day whenever it might suit his elder companion. It was little wonder then that so soon as each realized the other's readiness, they simultaneously jumped up and began to dress. The steward had, by previous instructions, early breakfast prepared, and it was not long before they went down the gangway on shore in search of the carriage. They found Mr. Sultan's bailiff looking out for them on the dock, and he brought them at once to where the carriage was waiting in the street. Richard Sultan pointed out with pride to his young companion the suitability of the vehicle for every need of travel. To it were harnessed four useful horses with a postillion to each pair. See, said the old man proudly, how it has all the luxuries of useful travel, silence and isolation as well as speed. There is nothing to obstruct the view of those travelling, and no one to overhear what they may say. I have used that trap for a quarter of a century, and I never saw one more suitable for travel. You shall test it shortly. We are going to drive through the heart of England, and as we go, I'll tell you what I was speaking of last night. Our route is to be by Salisbury, Bath, Bristol, Cheltenham, Worcester, Stafford, and so home. Adam remained silent a few minutes, during which he seemed all eyes, for he perpetually ranged the whole circle of the horizon. Has our journey today, sir, he asked, any special relation to what you said last night that you wanted to tell me? Not directly, but indirectly everything. Won't you tell me now? I see we can't be overheard, and if anything strikes you as we go along, just run it in. I shall understand. So old Sultan spoke. To begin at the beginning, Adam, that lecture of yours on the Romans in Britain, a report of which you posted to me, set me thinking, in addition to telling me your tastes. I wrote to you at once and asked you to come home, for it struck me that, if you were fond of historical research, as seemed a fact, this was exactly the place for you, in addition to its being home of your own forebears. If you could learn so much of the British Romans so far away in New South Wales, where there cannot be even a tradition of them, what might you not make of the same amount of study on the very spot? Where we are going is in the real heart of the old kingdom of Mercia, where there are traces of all the various nationalities which made up the conglomerate which became Britain. I rather gathered that you had some more definite, more personal reason for my hurrying. After all, history can keep. Except in the making. Quite right, my boy. I had a reason, such as you very wisely guessed. I am anxious for you to be here. 
when a rather important phase of our local history occurred. What is it, if I may ask, sir? Certainly, the principal landowner of our part of the country is on his way home, and there will be a great homecoming, which you may care to see. The fact is, for more than a century, the various owners in the secession here, with the exception of a short time, have lived abroad. How is that, sir, if I may ask? The great house and estate in our part of the world is Castor Regis, the family seat of the Coswell family. The last owner who lived here was Edgar Coswell, grandfather of the man who was coming home, and he was the only one who stayed even a short time. This man's grandfather, also named Edgar, they kept the tradition of the family Christian name, quarreled with his family and went to live abroad, not keeping up any intercourse, good or bad, with his relatives, although this particular Edgar, as I told you, did visit his family estate. Yet his son was born and lived and died abroad, while his grandson, the latest inheritor, was also born and lived abroad till he was over thirty, his present age. This was the second line of absentees. The great estate of Castor Regis has had no knowledge of its owner for five generations, covering more than a hundred and twenty years. It has been well administered, however, and no tenant or other connected with it has had anything of which to complain. All the same, there has been much natural anxiety to see the new owner, and we are all excited about the event of his coming. Even I am, though I own my own estate, which, though adjacent, is quite apart from Costa Regis. Here we are now, in new ground for you. That is the spire of Salisbury Cathedral, and when we leave that we shall be getting close to the old Roman county, and you will naturally want your eyes. So we shall shortly have to keep our minds on old Mercia. However, you need not be disappointed. My old friend, Sir Nathaniel de Salis, who, like myself, is a freeholder near Costa Regis, his estate, Doom Tower, is over the border of Derbyshire on the peak, is coming to stay with me for the festivities to welcome Edgar Coswell. He is just the sort of man you will like. He is devoted to history, and is president of the Mercian Archaeological Society. He knows more of our part of the country, with its history and its people, than anyone else. I expect he will have arrived before us, and we three can have a long chat after dinner. He is also our local geologist and natural historian, so you and he will have many interests in common. Amongst other things, he has a special knowledge of the peak and its caverns, and knows all the old legends of prehistoric times. They spent the night at Cheltingham, and on the following morning resumed their journey to Stafford. Adam's eyes were in constant employment, and it was not till Salton declared that they had now entered on the last stage of their journey that he referred to Sir Nathaniel's coming. As the dusk was closing down, they drove on to Lesser Hill, Mr. Salton's house. It was now too dark to see any details of their surroundings. Adam could just see that it was on the top of a hill, not quite so high as that which was covered by the castle, on whose tower flew the flag, and which was all ablaze with moving lights manifestly used in the preparations for the festivities on the morrow. So Adam deferred his curiosity till daylight. His grand-uncle was met at the door by a fine old man who greeted him warmly. "'I came over early as you wished. I suppose this is your grand-nephew. I am glad to meet you, Mr. Adam Salton. I am Nathaniel de Salas, and your uncle is one of my oldest friends.' Adam, from the moment of their eyes meeting, felt as if they were already friends. 
the meeting was a new note of welcome to those that had already sounded in his ears. The cordiality with which Sir Nathaniel and Adam met made the imparting of information easy. Sir Nathaniel was a clever man of the world, who had travelled much, and within a certain area studied deeply. He was a brilliant conversationalist, as was to be expected from a successful diplomatist, even under unstimulating conditions. But he had been touched, and to a certain extent fired, by the younger man's evident admiration and willingness to learn from him. Accordingly, the conversation, which began on the most friendly basis, soon warmed to an interest above proof, as the old man spoke of it next day to Richard Salton. He knew already that his old friend wanted his grand-nephew to learn all he could of the subject in hand, and so had, during his journey from the peak, put his thoughts in sequence for narration and explanation. Accordingly, Adam had only to listen, and he must learn much that he wanted to know. When dinner was over, and the servants had withdrawn, leaving the three men at their wine, Sir Nathaniel began. "'I gather from your uncle, by the way, I suppose we had better speak of you as uncle and nephew, instead of going into exact relationship. In fact, your uncle is so old and dear a friend, that, with your permission, I shall drop formality with you altogether, and speak of you, and to you, as Adam, as though you were his son.' "'I should like—' answered the young man, nothing better. The answer warmed the hearts of both the old men, but, with the usual avoidance of Englishmen of emotional subjects, personal to themselves, they instinctively returned to the previous question. Sir Nathaniel took the lead. "'I understand, Adam, that your uncle has posted you regarding the relationships of the Caswell family.' "'Partly, sir, but I understand that I was to hear minuter details from you, if you would be so good.' I shall be delighted to tell you anything so far as my knowledge goes. Well, the first Caswell in our immediate record is an Edgar, head of the family and owner of the estate, who came into his kingdom just about the time that George the Third did. He had one son of about twenty-four. There was a violent quarrel between the two. No one of this generation has any idea of the cause, but considering the family characteristics, we may take it for granted that, though it was deep and violent, it was on the surface trivial. The result of the quarrel was that the son left the house without a reconciliation, or without even telling his father where he was going. He never came back again. A few years after he died, without having in the meantime exchanged a word or a letter with his father. He married abroad, and left one son, who seems to have been brought up in ignorance of all belonging to him. The gulf between them appears to have been unbridgeable, for in time this son married, and in turn had a son. But neither joy nor sorrow brought the sundered together. Under such conditions no reproachment was to be looked for, and an utter indifference, founded at best on ignorance, took the place of family affection, even on community of interest. It was only due to the watchfulness of the lawyers that the birth of this new heir was ever made known. He actually spent a few months in the ancestral home. After this, the family interest merely rested on heirship of the estate, as no other children have been born to any of the newer generations in the intervening years. All hopes of heritage are now centred in the grandson of this man. Now it will be well for you to bear in mind the prevailing characteristics of this race. These were well preserved and unchanging. One and all, they are the same cold, selfish, dominant, reckless of consequences in pursuit of their own will. It was not that they did not keep faith, though that was a matter which gave them little concern, 
but that they took care to think beforehand of what they should do in order to gain their own ends. If they should make a mistake, someone else should bear the burden of it. This was so perpetually recurrent that it seemed to be a part of a fixed policy. It was no wonder that, whatever changes took place, they were always insured in their own possessions. They were absolutely cold and hard by nature. Not one of them, so far as we have any knowledge, has ever known to be touched by the softer sentiments, to swerve from his purpose, to hold his hand in obedience to the dictates of his heart. The pictures and effigies of them all show their adherence to the early Roman type. Their eyes were full, their hair of raven blackness grew thick and close and curly, their figures were massive and typical of strength. The thick black hair growing low down on the neck told of vast physical strength and endurance, but the most remarkable characteristic is the eyes, black, piercing, almost unendurable. They seem to contain in themselves a remarkable will-power, which there is no gainsaying. It is a power that is partly racial and partly individual, a power impregnated with some mysterious quality, partly hypnotic, partly mesmeric, which seems to take away from eyes that meet them all power of resistance, nay, all power of wishing to resist. With eyes like those set in that all-commanding face, one would need to be strong indeed to think of resisting the inflexible will that lay behind. You may think, Adam, that all this is imagination on my part, especially as I have never seen any of them. So it is, but imagination based on deep study. I have made use of all I know or can surmise logically regarding this strange race. With such strange compelling qualities, is it any wonder that there is abroad an idea that in the race there is some demonic possession, which tends to a more definite belief that certain individuals have in the past sold themselves to the devil? But I think we had better go to bed now. We have a lot to get through to-morrow, and I want you to have your brain clear, and all your susceptibilities fresh. Moreover, I want you to come with me for an early walk, during which we may notice— whilst the matter is fresh in our minds, the peculiar disposition of this place, not merely your grand-uncle's estate, but the lie of the country around it. There are many things on which we may speak, and perhaps find enlightenment. The more we know at the start, the more things which may come into our view will develop themselves. End of chapter 2 This recording is in the public domain.